Welcome to Digging Out. It's the October 15th, 2020 edition. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Today's program, my guests, John Rafling of Human Rights Watch, Andrea Garcia Ponce de Leon of San Bernardino Free Them All, and Lex Stepling with Dignity and Power, take California's Proposition 25, which replaces cash bail with a pre-trial risk assessment, and they broaden the conversation on reforming the criminal justice system in general. We'll be right back. Welcome to Digging Out. So much debris to clear away regarding California's Proposition 25. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a civics lesson on criminal justice or whatever terms we'll get schooled on in today's interview. We are recording this interview on October 12, 2020. My guests are John Rafling of Human Rights Watch in LA, Andrea Garcia Ponce de Leon, San Bernardino Free Them All, and Lex Stepling with Dignity and Power. John Rafling is a senior researcher on the US criminal legal system for Human Rights Watch. He has written extensively on the pretrial system in California and the use of risk assessment tools across the country. And that will be the essential part of what they will be talking to today. He, John Rafling spent over 20 years as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney, including 10 years in Los Angeles County as a deputy public defender. Listeners may have seen him in many, many media platforms, Nation, LA Times, and many, many more. Andrea, Garcia Ponce de Leon is a systems impacted abolitionist, co-founder and policy associate at San Bernardino Free Them All and community justice advocate supporting people's liberation and civil rights movements with a focus on advocacy for incarcerated people within California's carceral system. Lex Stepling, the third guest, is the director of policy and campaigns and Dignity and Power Now, and the co-chair of the Committee Against Pre-Trial Racism. John comes to us today from his home in LA, Andrea in her, from her home in Covina, and Lex at his home in Los Angeles. Welcome to Digging Out, John Rafling, Andrea Garcia Ponce de Leon, and Lex Stepling. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. That's John. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. This is and Lex. That's, and that's Lex. Well, thank you all for taking the time since this is an incredibly, it's an unprecedentedly busy campaign season. So let's begin with a summary of what Proposition 25 is, as though you were giving it to your Thanksgiving table or at a Rotary Club. And I promise that we will get way into the nuance right after this. John, would you like to, to take that? Sure, thanks. So SB 10 or Prop 25, they're, they're both the same thing. Prop 25 is a referendum to decide whether to keep the law SB 10, which was passed in uh, August of 2018. SB 10 would get rid of money bail, which in itself would uh, be a good thing as money bail is a harmful and discriminatory approach to um, deciding people's freedom. The problem with SB 10, or let's just talk generally, what SB 10 does is in getting rid of money bail, it sets up a different system that is 
equally harmful or even potentially more harmful than the money bail system. It sets up a system that can be used to jail more and more people pretrial, people who've been accused of crimes but not convicted. What it does is it uses risk assessment tools, which are algorithms which make an estimate about a person's risk based on certain data points. As it uses these risk assessment tools as essentially a gatekeeper of who's going to get released and who's eligible for release versus who's going to be detained. It then gives judges this expanded discretion to hold people in custody pre-trial, right, before they've been convicted of any crime, with no recourse for release. Whereas with setting bail, some people could raise the money, you know, from their family, from their community, from themselves to get out. Under SB 10, the judge would simply be ordering that you're stuck in, no recourse for release. Again, based on the risk assessment tool, as well as based on other information that they receive, but the judges will have this vast discretion to keep people locked up. And SB 10 sets up probation departments to oversee the pretrial system, including doing the assessments but also assigning conditions of release. So if people are released, they're going to be released with various conditions like reporting to probation, drug testing. Um, In pilot programs, we've seen search and seizure conditions, even electronic monitoring, and probation departments will be enforcing those conditions. So essentially what SB 10 is doing is putting people on probation, the people who get released from custody are going to be put on probation before they've even been convicted of a crime. And the ultimate concern is that more people are going to get sent back into custody because of these pretrial probation violations, and more people are going to be held in custody to begin with because of the risk assessment tools and judicial discretion. And just one final thing is it allocates a lot of money, a lot of state funding that could be going to supporting communities is instead going into setting up this highly carceral system. The cost benefit is really hard to calculate. There's really vague language in the bill that allows for probation to advocate for more funding to meet the requirements of them running pretrial services, which is actually pretty scary because it could allow for a motivation to increase the numbers of people under supervision, kind of essentially creates the opportunity for kind of a blank check relationship with the governor's office the costs of implementing the system are going to be extremely high. And that money is all going into law enforcement. It's going into our courts, into probation departments, into setting up a system designed to incarcerate. And the shame is that that money could be actually being invested in our communities and being invested in people and being invested in things that actually help people as opposed to locking them up. And there's been a very strong public call to defund the police, defund law enforcement, and direct that funding into our communities. And this is doing just the opposite. Do you think defund the police was a wordsmithing that set back the pretrial reform and redirect the funds? Or if there, what term would you have used if it wasn't defund the police? What term would I use? I would say, yes. you know, stop building up the carceral system. Stop. You know, the SB 10 is, as Lex said, a mass incarceration bill. And that's what we're spending our, we're spending our money on more incarceration. We're not spending money on improving the lives of people. 
I would say defund the police is, is fine. It has been challenging for some people. Yes, it is. Yeah. That, even that challenge has opened up dialogue. It's okay. a perfectly sensible and perfectly reasonable demand. I've never seen another set of public departments be allowed to fail the way law enforcement is allowed to fail. And it didn't come out of nowhere. I think people are quite fatigued and quite fed up with being so harmed by local law enforcement. And in addition, we're going on 40 years of austerity, 40 years of Reaganomics. And the one set of civic public departments that have survived austerity and in fact grown has been law enforcement. And that speaks to something I think very important to think about. And when we have so much groundwater, so to speak, to refill with regards to ah. public services, defunding the police is a really logical starting place. I think if people understood better, this goes back to the civic education piece. I think if more people understood what police budgets actually look like, if more people understood what the budgeting process actually looks like, it would be an even less challenging call to action. And when you look at what will be built, what would be built with the passage of Prop 25, let's help our listeners understand Who's the arbiters of what goes into those algorithms? Do we see those posted in, how transparent is it, but who's providing those algorithms, that, who's designing them, and how will we be able to, where would that be presented for public viewing? I mean, it's, is that part of the referendum or is it, that it remains to be seen? Um. I mean, this this brings us to kind of the core conflict here because the goal of, what people are colloquially calling for the past couple of years, bail reform. The goal is to address the problem of pretrial incarceration. The fact that thousands of legally innocent people are sitting in jail across the country is absurd. And where this all went wrong was that SB 10, Prop 25, decided to focus on the bail industry who are not the driver of pretrial incarceration. They are a parasite who profits from pretrial incarceration. They wouldn't exist if not for the judges. As our colleague John often says, John Rafling, as you say a lot, you know, no, no bail bondsman has ever set anybody's bail. It's the judges who've used that mechanism to work to keep people incarcerated. And what happened with SB 10 was the lack of focus on the real drivers of pretrial incarceration, which is, is the power of judges, allowed judicial counsel themselves to essentially rewrite the bill. And so to your question, what ended up happening is that the final version of SB 10, which is the one that would be implemented under Prop 25, was a rewrite by the judges. And so if you read through the bill, the more you get down into it, the more you see that where every, every road leads is the judges making the rules, the judges deciding how everything works. And so that includes the answer to your question with regards to who is the arbiters of these models, who gets to design them, who gets to oversee them, who gets to decide how they are implemented. And to the question about transparency, judges along with probation will have access to this data. Nobody else will. Nobody. And not until the end of the year. At the end of the year, there will be a review of the data the data with regards to the risk assessments in yeah, Sacramento. Sure. But outside of that, with regards to community accountability or transparency, there is none. We're already experiencing some of that now with some early implementation pilot programs in, in places like our own LA County, where um, no information is being shared. And again, these systems, 
if you allow the judges to rewrite and dictate the direction of a bill, they clearly are going to work in their own political self-interest, including making sure there's less recourse with regards to their decision-making power. So how long have those pilot projects been going on? So how much data is being racked up now for an examination? If there was like a Freedom of Information Act, because it takes that much work to get to it, how institutionalized were those pilot projects? How much do we know from them? What do we know in LA? Well, that's kind of the point. We don't know a lot because we don't know information. Okay. And, and there's no accountability mechanisms built into this beyond a review at the state, which takes the power away from localities to demand accountability. A review at the state and you, again, the arbiters even of the review is judicial counsel. So judges are allowed to rig the whole game and rig the game with fluidity. There's, there's zero accountability baked into Prop 25. Well, I mean, I think the public has developed an increasingly more profound level of skepticism about how algorithms are driving what, micro-targeting and political systems and, and everywhere else. And so it's that there, and we know that programmers, they're, they're, they leave a lot of bugs behind. There's a, or, and that's, that's after that you, you're saying that the judges can make the calls of what kind of formulas are engineered into those algorithms for the risk assessment. So I don't know if any, the three of you want to speak to, there's a judicial input and then there's the tech input and talk to the unintended consequences or in, intended but pernicious consequences of the interplay of those two with their own blind spots, both of them. Right. Something that we're also seeing with the risk assessment tools that should be noted for folks is that essentially the algorithm is a computer generated score, like a credit score. And it's a one to six, right? Or is that that's the example given in debates? Is is it one to six? That's the Arnold's rule is on a one to six scale, but uh, others have different scales. Oh, okay. Okay. Andrea? Some of the questions there would be, what are a person's race, what their age is. And I think it's also very important to note that the younger that a person is, then essentially that makes their score higher, which really doesn't make sense because now we're targeting our youth and our younger people. And again, back to the race, folks that are already impacted, which are BIPOC people and other minorities are at a greater risk for being held in pretrial detention because of an accelerated score. Also a determining factor would be where you live, your zip code, if you are in a low income or defined area as versus maybe a nicer zip code maybe, then that would also accelerate your score. And I don't think that that would give any fairness to folks that have to be held in pretrial detention based on the fact that they live in a certain zip code or were of a certain race. Just want to let our listeners now reintroduce my guest. You're listening to Digging Out. My guests are John Rafling with Human Rights Watch in Los Angeles, Andrea Garcia Ponce de Leon of San Bernardino, Free Them All, and Lex Stepling, Director of Policy of Campaigns at Dignity and Power Now. So they're examining now the finer points 
of California Prop 25 on the statewide general election ballot, the exercise is not simply to talk about a position taken on Prop 25, but really we're gonna try to dig out from the layers of what has been a malfunctioning of and baked into our carceral system. So we've already started to move in and talking about the judge's role. So maybe, so the pieces of the carceral infrastructure. And, and as you mentioned earlier, carceral includes people that have not been convicted of a crime, that this is pre-trial. So carceral is a broad, broad kind of sweep here. And so um, if we could talk about where, I mean, Andrea talked a little bit about some of those data points, but maybe you could all three give us where the earliest sorts of transgressions appear. We could look at them as maybe like lint that keeps sticking to the individual that makes risk assessment much, much more fraught for that individual. And I'm thinking, for example, and you have other, you have many, many examples of when a child, we know there's a bias against children of color when they are being dealt with in the classroom. And that is not, is that not one of the first data points that enters into the risk assessment, that the history of them inside their education systems. This is John, if I, I could address that, because I think that's a really critical, important point to understanding the risk assessment tools. You know, even if they don't explicitly make race a factor, even if they don't explicitly make zip codes a factor, and some, some do, some don't. Okay. But often a factor may be education level, housing stability, uh, employment history, the, and those those factors all tie into, you know, just what you were saying, the inequalities built into our education system and built into uh, socioeconomic status, which are all very much related to race. One of the biggest factors that we get in the risk assessment tools, common to most all of them, is just looking at criminal legal system history, prior arrests, prior convictions, missed court dates, things of that nature. And Prior arrests are often are largely dictated by who are the police stopping, who are the police searching, who are police arresting. I may drive around in, in a you know, middle class, wealthier white neighborhood uh, with guns and drugs in my car, but I'm not getting stopped. And if I do get stopped, I'm probably not getting searched either. Whereas in uh, lower income neighborhoods, particularly in, in black and brown communities, police are all over people. Uh, stopping them, searching them at much higher rates, which means that the criminal history factors are going to be much higher. These get recirculated in, uh, and then go on to what are, what are court outcomes like? You know, our courts, I don't think anyone realistically disputes that our courts treat poor people, treat black and brown people far worse uh, than they do wealthier and white people. Well, they treat them worse than tax law, right? What? So we, we, we know that bias is all over in the societal structures. So yes, but in, especially in this case where the risk and assessments are part. Tools recycle that data. And, you know, so the, the phrase is garbage in, garbage out. So if you've got racially biased data coming into the tool as an input, the output, the prediction, or really the estimate, uh, some would say even the guess that the tool spit out about how risky someone is, is gonna be defined by the bias data that comes in. 
the discriminatory data that comes in. And so we're gonna get these discriminatory results. And nobody really disputes that that's how it works. Even people who make the tools understand, yeah, we're defined by the data that we're using. The problem is, because, right, I mean, judges are, can, can and often are, can be and often are discriminatory in them. But here, the tools give this aura of being objective and scientific. And there's a lack of transparency into how they make their decisions. And so they're difficult, if not impossible, to challenge because of that supposed and not true because of that supposed objectivity. And in fact, they're not objective at all. So I'm, I want to take a shorthand, bring that up, that in every single kind of weighing in with the media and with the, with the talking heads and all that, the bail system is biased about who has the ability to pay bail. And Prop 25 is the ability to keep your record spotless. Is, is that sort of the divide between the, the two sides of this piece of, uh, of this proposition? SB 10 Prop 25 at best re-entrenches the problem and at worst it extends out the issue of mass incarceration, which is what we believe. We actually believe this represents an outgrowth of mass incarceration while simultaneously misframing the issue, focusing on a piece of the system that does not actually cause the problem, but simply exists because of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so there's something bad faith about all of it. And then uh, like when we talk about, you know, bad data in, bad data out, we're in this moment where it's very important that people take time to understand that law enforcement does not provide good data. And often law enforcement doesn't even tell the truth, period. But the data they provide at best is case oriented. It's not the kind of data that, you know, a public health department might try to develop to give aggregate data to actually try to understand outcomes or impacts. So it's faulty to begin with. And that's mm-hmm. not even taking into consideration all of what we just said, which is the biases that are built into all of it. The biases around race, the biases around class that literally dictate how policing works and then how that data will get accumulated or has been accumulated for generations. So frankly speaking, This represents the automation of racial profiling. And one of the most frustrating parts about this whole experience is that nobody denies that. You can talk to the people who support Prop 25, they won't deny that this is the automation of racial profiling. They will simply say something like, you know, we felt like this was the best we could do because we have to get rid of the bail bonds industry. And if your goal is to get rid of the bail bonds industry, then maybe that's a valid argument. If your goal is to address mass incarceration, if your goal is to address the fact that legally innocent people are getting jailed at a massive rate, then it's actually dishonest to simply blame uh, bail. It's, it's a system that can be transformed. It's a system we can organize out of. It's already happening in many cases. And then in LA County, for example, there is a pathway out of that. And in several other places too, in other states like New York, they passed the right kind of pretrial reform. So what this actually does, and this is why it earned the nickname, SB10 earned the nickname Setback10, it actually takes us all backwards. It re-entrenches the whole problem and then grows it out via tech. And all of that gets to be overseen in a kind of omnipotent context by judges. 
And I, I did want to ask later, but you brought up New York's example here. So how in, you're comparing California and New York, how does California compare with any other states around the country, just so we can understand where we're positioned here with this proposition? John, would you like to start? I know you did some of the early uh, thought leadership on what happened in New York. So, yeah, the, the New York uh, pretrial reform is imperfect, um, but it has the right idea in that it it sets as sort of the, the initial point is we're going to limit the number of people and the categories of people who can be held in pretrial custody. In other words, we're going to say that people should be presumed innocent, right, which is supposedly one of the foundations of our legal system, at least in theory, and people should be presumed innocent and shouldn't be punished by being held in custody. And so they made a lot of people ineligible for pretrial custody, which is the right approach, right? If they're found guilty and if the proper punishment is jail, well, that's another story. Um, but the person hasn't even been- uh, Pretrial, yeah. Found guilty, but you're punishing them. So New York addressed that, you know, again, imperfectly, but, and the results have been that there's been an improvement in the rate of pretrial incarceration. It's gone down considerably. Other states, uh, Kentucky, for example, has used a risk assessment model that has similarities to SB10. And in fact, there was an initial reduction in pretrial incarceration, and then the numbers went up. In addition to the numbers of people who were incarcerated going up, my understanding is that the, the rate of change for Black people as opposed to white people has, has gone up. The, the system actually became more discriminatory. Hmm. So risk assessments are being used uh, you know, around the country in different places. There haven't been the, the as in-depth studies yet as there have been in Kentucky. New Jersey uses risk assessment tools. There have been reductions in pretrial incarceration there, but they're also, that's in the context of a set of larger reforms, including something called site and release, where they're just not even booking people, just essentially giving them tickets. And so they're not even going into pretrial custody at all. So there's a variety of different approaches and SB 10 seems in many ways to take the worst of those approaches and the most dangerous in terms of the potential to increase incarceration. So I don't know if either Lex or Andrea wanted to speak about what some of those other models from other states inform us about Prop 25. Give you a chance to speak to that too. From you know work you've done with activists over the state borders and things like that. Andrea, do you have anything you wanna add? No, Lex, I don't. I don't have too much same stuff um, from New York and from a pub, former public defender at Institute of Justice in New York. And Cheryl Rahman has also agreed um, and quote, when it comes to public safety across the board, we tend to just use our discretion to detain. That's what the system has historically done, end quote. And where in what state? This is also in New York. Also in New York, okay. Yes, okay. and Sharp Rahman. She was a, a former public defender. Well, how long has New York, Kentucky, and New Jersey have they had their risk assessment systems? Just so we have an idea how long. Well, New York's pretrial reform does not use risk assessment. Now, there are jurisdictions within New York that are using them, but oh. the overall system does not say you must use risk assessment. And that's the big 
that's one of the big problems with SB 10 is that it requires the use of risk assessment. And the more are using it, particularly in a big and influential state like California, the more other states are going to see that that's are going to decide that, you know, well, that's the way to go. And it's going to expand the use of these tools, not just in pretrial, but in sentencing decisions, probation decisions, parole decisions, all kinds of decisions about people's freedom and, or whether they're in custody. Kentucky has used it at least since 2011. Okay. And as it's a while. Yeah, you know, so, so, so it, it's been in use. I mean, variations on risk assessments have been used for decades. Okay. But, you know, Kentucky is, is sort of the, one of the more developed pretrial systems. And as I mentioned, you know, there were initially reductions. And, yes. And, and then now there've been, now it's gone to where it's increased greater rates of pretrial incarceration than before. And, and New Jersey? New Jersey, I think, started in 2017. And there have been reductions in incarceration rates. I don't have the most current data, but understand that that's not necessarily attributable to the risk assessment tools because there are other reforms that they did that were actually quite good that definitely reduce incarceration rates. And one thing that's really important to understand about the risk assessment tools that I don't think we've touched on. Okay. The tools will do what you want them to do in terms of the numbers, right? You can set the tools to release everybody. You can set the tools to release nobody. I'll give you a, a quick example. In mm -hmm. the federal system, the federal Department of Justice said, well, we're going to release all people within this particular low-risk category because we want to get people out because of COVID, right? Because the jails and the federal prisons we're having outbreaks and the best way to deal with outbreaks is to have less people in jails and prisons. So they make this announcement. And then what they didn't announce is they adjusted the scoring system of their tool so that hardly anybody fit the criteria. Yeah. And that's a feature of the tool. You can just simply adjust the way they're scored to get as many people in whatever category you want. Usually it's a low, medium and high risk category. You can decide what percentage of people you want in the low risk. You can decide what percentage you want in the high risk. By you, I mean the person who controls the tool. And if that's judges, well, we know how they've used money bail to keep people in custody. There's no reason to think they're not going to use the risk assessment tools to keep people in custody. Lex? A lot of this also ends up taking kind of top-down solution-oriented thinking where a tech firm, for example, or a yeah. venture capitalist says the answer is in risk assessments. It takes away from the opportunity to, to develop the real solutions. There are programs throughout the country as well, including here in California, that lean on an orientation towards a person going through the court system that is to provide assistance, to provide person-to-person -person assessment with regards to what the conditions and factors that that person is dealing with in their life are and how that might relate to why they're encountering the court system in the first place. Programs that emphasize diverting people out of jail, programs that emphasize light touch notifications to let people know when their court date is, to let people know where their court date is, to help people with things like childcare and transportation. These things lead to far better public safety outcomes they also lead to new opportunities to create 
the right kind of jobs for the public sector with regards to developing service-oriented programs that are in synthesis with community-based service providers. This is what we're mapping out here in Los Angeles. These are the kind of solutions that people who work on the ground with impacted community members are far more capable of developing than a former Enron executive venture capitalist who wants his algorithm to become the kind of monopolized tool around the country, with California being the obvious white whale because more people cycle through the courts in California than anywhere else in the country. It also detracts from the conversation about, again, about drivers of incarceration. A big part of why New Jersey had some success had nothing to do with risk assessments and everything to do with things like discovery reform. And like John Rayfling said, how discretion gets used, period. A place like DC, which has got a very imperfect model, but what did happen was the independent pretrial agency there made commitments to high percentages of, of release of people. And none of that exists in, in Prop 25. Prop 25 yeah. is built to allow for as much incarceration as they want with no recourse under the banner of, hey, you know, got to do what we got to do. It's politically expedient because none of us like the bail bonds industry. So it's a very bad faith red herring that communities are being forced into with a piece of legislation like this, which is ultimately, and there's really no debate here, a power grab by probation departments and judges. Because to the point that I started this with, pretrial services should actually be an opportunity to have clarity on how you navigate the court system now that you're in contact with it. A lot of us have ended up with warrants at one point in our life or another simply because uh, we didn't get that information delivered to us on time. Much of that was proven in things like the 2016 Department of Justice Ferguson report, which showed how targeted communities, if you live in a zip code or an area that's, that's targeted, usually poor black and brown areas that are targeted by policing, like uh, John said earlier, folks are getting stopped. Right. Yeah. Often then you end up with a warrant for a failure to appear. And what's not, what we have to just hope that people believe anecdotally is the huge percentage of people that never got their notification for when and where their court date was and instead just one day end up with a warrant. Things like that allow for the continued kind of extortion via policing of underserved communities. And what's really upsetting about a bill like SE 10 Prop 25 is that it actually grows out that problem, amplifies that problem, resources that problem, and actually takes away some of the checks and balances we're all trying to develop with regards to addressing and dismantling that problem. And so now you have literal machinery profiling you as a danger or as a flight risk. It's an even harder bureaucracy now for people to navigate. And then if somebody is lucky enough to be released pre-trial under SB 10, under Prop 25, they're now under the supervision of probation. So this bill effectively gives probation departments the keys to the front door and the keys to the back door of mass incarceration and has everybody living as if they're on probation or parole when in fact they're legally innocent and simply need help navigating a convoluted court system. Where it's not hard to have a misstep in the probationary system and there, there's another ding on your record. Absolutely. So I want to get back to both what John saying, and Andrew, please jump in any old time here. And Lex was saying about the top-down approach to Prop 25. And what comes to my mind in the risk assessment is in the bottom-up translation here, the analysis, 
that the, let's say it's the breadwinner that's detained pre-trial. And that, so if it was bottom up, the risk is to the household that the breadwinner is not there supporting the household and things begin to cascade into greater hazards. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And I'd also like to call attention to the fact that having a lower score does not equal a get out a free jail card. You can have a lower score, but it is still up to or the the judges still have full and total discretion to uh, detain and incarcerate a person regardless of what their score is. And I think that's very important for folks to understand that having a risk assessment lower score does not mean necessarily that you are going home. And it's not the last help. It's not the last hoop. There's still the judicial hoop, as, as you're saying. Yes, definitely, because the judges have more, more power than they already do now if, if SB 10 were to pass. So, and, and that cannot be seen in any kind of public record. That is not a transparent step taken, is it? Where the judge will intervene after an, a risk assessment score is given. No, the, the, the process allows the judge to override a uh, risk assessment score. So a judge could say, oh, you have a high risk, but I think you're okay, I'll release you. That's not gonna happen very much. Um, and in fact, where, where we've studied the implementation of risk assessment scores, we found that judges override low risk scores by detaining at a vastly um, higher rate than they override high risk scores by releasing people. So in other words, judicial discretion is going almost entirely in the direction of more detention, even than the uh, risk scores are calling for. Is that what was learned in Kentucky's situation? Yes, that was part of the issue with uh, additional incarceration in Kentucky and also looking at various counties in California that have used this uh, pilot investment. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out. We're recording this on October 12th. My guests are John Rafling with Human Rights Watch in Los Angeles, Andrea Garcia Ponce de Leon of San Bernardino Free Them All, and Lex Stepling of Dignity and Power Now. And they are examining the finer points of California's Proposition 25 on the November 3rd general election ballot statewide. And we're making sure everybody passes the whole quiz in flying colors, what is involved in risk assessments and what are the sort of hoops that a pre-trial case goes through to determine whether they're gonna get locked up or whether they're gonna go back to their home and continue civilian living In terms of justice, is there any kind of work that's been done to show when they're released, what sorts of, what what participation, you know, in the economy, in in their, any uh, eventual uh, conviction rates? I mean, what do we know that released, I know it's data that's been, it's been analyzed, but what can you tell us is the dividend of releasing as much as is possible in where that's practiced in around the country. Sure, I can um, 
I can respond to that and maybe others can jump in and, and add. So pretrial incarceration has a variety of negative consequences, right? Locking people up who've been merely accused of a crime, um, punishing a person before they've been convicted, the fact that people have to sit in custody and suffer uh, being in custody with the bail system that people have to go into debt paying money bail. The, in many ways, the biggest, most direct consequence of pretrial incarceration and one that people who haven't faced the system or who haven't worked in the courts maybe don't understand is that people who are held in custody pretrial plead guilty fast. And they do it because the system is set up so that you are given a choice of, if you want to get out, plead guilty now. If you want to fight your case, in other words, if you want to assert your innocence, you're going to have to sit and wait until your trial date. Sit, and by sit, I mean sit in jail. And so people are, are faced with it. And this isn't just like a handful of people. This is in the report I wrote on the California system, looking at six different counties with good usable data. We found that in the range of 70 to 90 percent of people going through the courts on misdemeanor and lower level felony charges, which is the vast majority of people going through the courts, were pleading guilty to get out of custody before their first possible opportunity to go to trial. In other words, all of these people were given the choice of you want to go home, you got to plead guilty. You want to say that you're innocent, you're going to stay in jail. So that's a recipe for a very unfair court system, right? That means pleading guilty regardless of actual guilt. That means you're getting wrongful convictions, not as the occasion, but as a feature of the system. And here's the disturbing part about it is everybody knows this, how the system works. Everybody who works in there, the judges know it, the prosecutors know it, defense attorneys certainly know it, and the people who are in custody who are trying to fight the you know, who are being accused of cases, they know that's how it works. When we called for pretrial reform and said end money bail, the idea was people should be free so that they can fight their case from the outside where they have a better chance of mounting a defense and where they're not being coerced into pleading guilty. Well, they're they're also attired differently when they come into the trial, right? into the courthouse. There there are so many different aspects of of, of how, I mean, if you get into, you know, how they get woken up at three in the morning and and to, on their day to come to court and held in these pens and and how horrible the whole, just the process of going to court from being in custody is. But the point is that being in pretrial custody is such a disadvantage and such a pressure to get people to plead guilty that it entirely undermines the the credibility of our courts. Instead of changing that system, SB 10, because there was an original SB 10 and then it changed into what we have now, SB 10, Prop 25, got hijacked into a system that retains and even enhances the power of judges to continue with pretrial incarceration. That, that, That is, there were judges throughout the state that participated in that, we'll call it markup of the proposition. Markup, I would say 100% erasing the old one and 100% replacing it with a wish list and a power grab for judges and probation. An entire wholesale redefinition of the measure. Not one word of the original remained. I don't think people know that, though. This is an essential point to bring up. Yes, Andrea. 
may I just add for people Please. that do not know uh, or that are concerned now, even more so during COVID-19, in incarceration, there is not social distancing. So if a person is high risk and is incarcerated, they are in the proximity of possibly becoming sick and catching COVID-19, as well as if they're going to court and there is not social distancing in court lines, on buses, during court. Um, you know, that, that's a really big concern for people, especially if they're already at a, a high risk medically. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Absolutely. Folks, folks that could come into a pretrial custody that are thinking, I need to get out of here. I, I'm going to do whatever I have to because it's very unsafe. This is a system that is not following COVID-19 restrictions or guidelines. I'm speechless. So the, the pretrial incarceration absolutely removes any control an individual has to practice basic public health measures to prevent them from contracting COVID, period, at every juncture. Absolutely. Yeah, so, the, the first, yes, Lex. The next time a jail system prioritizes public health protocols will be the first time. And any set of public health issues that are compounded by inequity are distilled in our jail system. And the idea that we are being asked via a policy like Prop 25 to trust that same system to carry out something that allows for an outgrowth of the problem and gives them all of the discretion and that we're being asked to trust that in service of cutting out one bad actor and replacing it with something far worse is a profound problem. And it's why those of us who are you know, working to continue to keep the momentum going in the right direction with the numerous and very positive and exciting wins that we've had in places like LA County, wouldn't have wanted to have to add to our plate trying to stop something that our kind of peers should all agree on needs to be stopped is part of what has driven this particular political conflict because it's been so confusing for people there's so very misinformation for people. And there's a top line that sounds good. The top line saying, get rid of cash bail and replace it with risk assessments sounds fine. The reality is that this is a mass incarceration bill, full stop, and one that also entrenches a set of systems that will allow for a expansion of an already bloated system of mass incarceration. And it's just important to remember that California is the largest jailing state in the largest jailing country in the world. And now people are asking us to pass a pretrial reform bill that actually allows for that system to grow rather than contract. And I just wanna give listeners an opportunity since I am coming from KUCI, that from our UCI law school faculty, there's an entire exhaustive workup of this that Alexandra Natapoff published her titled punishment without crime. And so I just want to just put that book out there. I know there's so many resources for people to do their civic work here to take up this. So I want to know with the, the juncture we're at, passage of Prop 25, were that adopted after the election of November 3rd, is pre-trial reform, the, the measures baked in so much in Prop 25, is there any 
room for pre-trial reform or is it that's game over or is there any way out from under that or is the only way for pre-trial reform is not to pass Prop 25? There are lots of, um, lots of pathways to something better. Okay. In, in Los Angeles County, for example, where we were able to stop the planned expansion of LA County Jail and replace it with a comprehensive roadmap to something completely different called the Alternatives to Incarceration Workgroup Report. The report was approved unanimously by the Board of Supervisors. So we have a plan to dismantle mass incarceration in LA County, and that includes pretrial policy. And a couple of really important points are baked into that. For example, an independent community-based or community-informed pretrial services agency rather than probation, which is built into Prop 25. There is a state policy package that we've all been developing for some time now called PPI, Preserving the Presumption of Innocence. And those wow. two things concurrently are moving forward. We can export what's happening in a place like LA County to other counties in California. There are other counties already doing their own versions of what we're doing while we simultaneously push something in Sacramento. And as an organizer, you're always told by people, well, that's not possible. That's mm. not possible. You don't understand the political landscape. You don't understand the appetite, et cetera, et cetera. Even in this particular case, you have people who are supporting Prop 25 claiming it's not possible because of case law that states if a ballot referendum passes, then you can no longer do the same kind of reform ever again at the legislative level. That would be true if our goal was to just get rid of the bail industry. But because SB 10 actually ignores real pretrial reforms, that also is not an impediment. Okay. We, have several, we have several plans, most of which are already in motion. Like I said, with the transformative ATI victory, SB 10 actually, Prop 25 actually becomes a roadblock to that implementation. If you look at the folks in San Francisco who have an independent pretrial agency, that would be swallowed up by probation if Prop 25 were to pass. There are lots of alternatives, some of which are in practice. There's examples of better pretrial reform around the country. Nothing is perfect, but that's the conflict I think we're much more open to having is questions like, well, is it perfect? Does it go far enough? Where do we want this to land? That's the kind of conflict we expect to have. What we don't expect to have to do is fight to stop something that's harmful, that takes us 10 steps backwards, that creates a whole new disaster under the name of progressive reforms on the backs of communities that have been leading and developing the demand for pretrial reform for some time now. So the door isn't closed. There's just a, a I don't know what's the analogy here, all of you, Lex, Andrea, or John. With Prop 25, the pathways continue. So I'm concerned about the structural aspect of reform. So the best branches to address this, the most effective reform, I think Lex was getting at that, is that there needs to be what's working in Los Angeles County, and it needs to be exported to other counties. And maybe is there effort amongst any of yours work to export them also to other states so that if California leads and happens to lead by an adoption of Prop 25, there's still, there's some leadership in some of those more local based programs to out to other states to, 
sort of offset whatever kind of momentum is coming from Prop 25 being exported to other states. Yes, we work with a, a group in Western Massachusetts who follows us very closely here in California okay. and is looking at all of our steps, what, what is working. And they have in hopes to implement uh, whatever is working here, there, as we have the largest carceral system. So they're very much in tune in, in alignment with our actions and what we are trying to accomplish here in California. John? Yeah, other states throughout the country are looking at California to see what we do. Other states will follow the lead of California. And we're working with a large coalition of people and groups here in California on pretrial, but also connected to people across the country who are dealing with just these same issues. So what happens here in California with pretrial reform, with risk assessment, with the expansion or not expansion of probation department's power will really reverberate across the country. So it's a very important decision that'll be made. Now, obviously, either way it goes, we're not going to stop fighting and pushing for improvements and for changes that will benefit people. So I guess as we draw down our time together, I'd like to ask all three of you how you've noted the exercise of the public discussing what is in California's Prop 25. Do you see that this is performing some service to help people understand better what's involved with the pretrial measures that are uh, in place in California? Do you see that this civic lesson is yielding some important dividends? Start with John. Sure, thank you. I think that there has been There is a great deal of interest in this topic that maybe seems arcane to a lot of people, but really has a very powerful direct impact on so many people's lives and on the well-being of so many communities throughout California. So in a sense, the idea that more people are tuned into it, thinking about it and learning about it is good. The fact that, you know, radio shows and other media like yours are doing a more long form, let's actually dive into these issues. I think that has tremendous value. I've seen TV ads about this uh, from the yes people that you know are basically very misleading. And that's unfortunate, but also typical of our politics. I think that it is really important that we actually look at the facts and the details and move away from the hashtag politics that led us to getting SB 10 passed. So, you know, to the extent that people are actually diving in and learning the details and trying to understand how the system works, that's a great value. Okay. How about you, Andrea? I have to echo John's statement and what we are seeing most with community-based organizations and impacted people is a lot of confusion around this bill. Based on what they're reading and what they're seeing, they don't have all of the best information to come to a decision and they're pressed because they're early voting also. So they want to get their ballots in and they, I just see that they don't have the best informed decisions. So this platform, as well as others, taking a deeper dive is very important, as well as one thing we haven't talked about is cost. How much would this Absolutely. cost? Absolutely. 
taxpayers. And it's exciting for folks to take a look at the numbers and see that we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to implement um, during this time of coronavirus that we're living in and um, budget cuts that have already affected our system and um, many policies. So I think having these discussions is so informative and exactly what people need and we need to educate that's part of our job and getting the word out there and thank you again for having us here to do that thank you lex what would you like to say in conclusion about the dividends of the discourse the whole public considering proposition 25 when we decided to kind of formalize our opposition to sb10 a couple of years ago and then have to reformalize it in response to a, a ballot initiative and an election year, we committed to prioritizing above all else, utilizing this moment as an opportunity for public political education. That understanding that the real fight is pre-trial incarceration as a concept having been normalized for generations is something that we want that conversation to start with a conversation about abolition, abolition of a system that is so absurd and so harmful and continue to open up space where people can genuinely reimagine what we do with regards to public safety, with regards to understanding public safety as a right to everybody, with regards to understanding that law enforcement is often one of the biggest obstacles to public safety and that one of, if not the biggest driver of mass incarceration, if you can identify such a thing, is the pretrial system. And so when we launched the Committee Against Pretrial Racism, this ballot committee, we made a conscious effort, a very intentional decision to take no special interest money, even if it was special interest money that was aligned with us. We chose to operate in opposition to something with a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the resources that the folks pushing 25 have in the service of making sure that we were going to be able to offer a completely facts-based and undiluted message and that people knew and know and will continue to know when the dust clears after November who they can trust to tell them the truth. Because we are in service in this moment of nobody beyond the communities who stand to be impacted by such policies. And so we have the luxury of having no strings attached to our message, even if that means operating with far fewer resources than those who choose to push a frankly very harmful piece of legislation. And so there's always value in mobilizing yourself and your networks to tell everybody the truth because ultimately folks can't look away from the truth. Thank you so much. My guests were John Rafling with Human Rights Watch in Los Angeles, Andrea Garcia Ponce de Leon of San Bernardino Free Them All and Lex Stepling, Dignity and Power Now. Thank you all for the time you didn't even have for this discussion of what is involved with California's Proposition 25 on the election now. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you for having us on the show. Thank you, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, Claudia, appreciate you having us. For next week, I'm working on a Native American perspective. Meanwhile, one way to dig out is voting thoughtfully and early. Talk with you next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>